You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Luke chapter 20, verse 45. And Lord, it says, we come to your word. We're more than desperate to hear from you, more than desperate to be changed by you. And Lord, even just as, as just forgive us for our weakness and our simplicity of mind, but even as this section could be hard to digest, uh, we just pray that you would bring it home to us and help us to apply the text to our life. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> there in verse 45, he, Jesus says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. In chapter 12 of Luke, Jesus says to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. What's he talking about? You know, in the Bible, yeast and leaven is often used as a picture of sin. Uh, if, you, if you're a baker or a candlestick maker, no, maybe not the candlestick part, but if you're a baker, uh, you'll know that, you know, you put the yeast or you put the, the leaven in the bread to make the sourdough bread and it spreads throughout the whole lump. And it's just a picture of sin, how even a tiny little bit in our life, tiny little grain of sin will spread throughout, not just us, but the people around us. And it spreads like, like cancer. And the Pharisees had a type of sin or a type of yeast that Jesus said, watch out for it because it spreads within the church or within the synagogue. And that is hypocrisy. And we're going to read in Matthew chapter 23 today, we're going to jump over there to the parallel passage that takes up a whole chapter. And Jesus condemns this leaven, this sin of hypocrisy. It's interesting that word hypocrite uh, literally speaks of an actor, someone who's just acting all the time, but really in their heart, they're somebody different or behind closed doors or when they're by themselves, they're, they're different. They have no character. You know, it's been said that character is who you are when no one else is around. And the Pharisees were just, were, were two-faced. They were hypocrites. They were actors. And we've just seen the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the scribes. In the last six weeks, we've just studied how they were nothing but religious and nothing but empty at that. Empty religion. And Jesus is just going to come down, bring the hammer down on this hypocrisy, this empty religion. And while they've been trying to catch Jesus in some sort of, you know, in some sort of lie or some sort of, you know, error in his ways so they could throw him in jail or better yet, you know, kill him. Uh, their jaws have constantly dropped at his answers, but their knees never had. They never bowed their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ and received him as the Messiah, the son of God. And so, you know, he, he just, he's going to deliver a striking blow to the Pharisees today. Warren Wearsby says, Jesus delivers a scathing denunciation of false religion that was paraded under the guise of truth. It was paraded around Jerusalem that this is how you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be this pompous, religious person. 
And uh, we're going to see that that's not really what the Lord wanted. And as we read uh, Matthew 23, and you can just start flipping over there now, we're going to see that Jesus uses some of the most severe language that he's ever used before. And, uh, you know, not every Pharisee was an enemy of Jesus. Some of them did follow him. But uh, many of them were sincere to live a life set apart uh, for God and consecrated to the law, but they just never put their heart into their holiness. You know, they never gave Jesus all that they were. To them, it was just tradition and rules and regulations. And so uh, there in Matthew chapter 23, uh, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. So the first half of the chapter, Jesus is talking to thousands of people. Pharisees are in the midst, you know, other people, the disciples. And he kind of does this broad talking about the Pharisees, but, you know, hopefully they catch on to this. And, and then, uh, and then in at cha- verse 13, he's going to turn and he's going to look directly into the eyes of the Pharisees and pronounce a set of eight woes against them. And so in in verse one, he's talking to the the whole multitude there saying, verse two, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses's seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe that observe and do, but do not do according to their works for they say and do not do. So we read about Moses's seat and and that really just spoke of a position of teaching kind of like behind the pulpit. In Nehemiah chapter 8, you read about the revival at the water gate and how Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood that they'd made for the purpose of him reading out the word. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, amen, while they were lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I love Nehemiah chapter eight, revival at the water gate. You know that while the word of God was being read, revival was happening in the hearts. And then it goes on to say that um, midway through verse seven, that the Levites, a list of names, the Levites helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So, you know, the scribes had this great job of getting to tell people the word of God and to give the sense of it. They were preachers really at the heart of things. And it was a a real privilege having this job, except that instead of leading the people closer to intimacy with God, the scribes of Jesus's day uh, had something different in their lives than what they preached, you know? And so it's just the classic do as I say, not as I do sort of thing, you know, as they would teach from the word and then go out and do something completely different. In verse four, it says that they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear. Back in Matthew 23, they bind heavy burdens on people, hard to carry, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. These heavy burdens that they were just laying on the men and women, extra biblical traditions that the rabbis would give. 
the extra writings of the Talmud. They were intended of making the Old Testament a little bit more relevant for this time and place, but all it ended up doing was, you know, I don't know if you've ever gone backpacking up in the woods with an 80 to 90 pound pack, but you know, after about a hundred yards, your tongue is somewhere down in your throat, you know, and you're trying to get it back so you can take a drink of water, you know, and that's exactly what was happened. They would put these traditions and rules and regulations that are nowhere in the scriptures, but it's just, well, I think that we should be doing this. Well, then let's start doing that. Well, you'd better, or you're going to hell. Oh gosh, you know, just start carrying all of these traditions and regulations on people. And Peter refers to it as like a yoke that men aren't able to carry. You know, he says that, you know, we're not able to carry it and our forefathers weren't able to carry it. In fact, that's the whole reason why Jesus had to come because we couldn't fulfill the covenant with God and the law. We couldn't do it. And so one had to come who could do it. And he came and he lived a sinless life and he gave his life up as a ransom for many, all because we couldn't do it in the first place. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, It says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, the early church was falling into this like the Pharisees would, where they would try to relate to God based on their works. They would try to be just before God and righteous before God because of the things that they did or didn't do when really all they needed to do was bow the knee to Jesus and put on Christ. And when you put on Christ, you're made a new creation. The father only sees the son in you. His holiness is imparted on you. No longer is your sin seen, but his holiness is seen. Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of those empty works now. If you're found in Christ, you don't have to do things to appease him. You get to do things just to please him. You know, I get to surprise my wife by doing the laundry. I don't, but I get to. Occasionally I'll make the bed, you know, you know, or I get to buy her a gift on our anniversary. I don't have to, I'll get in trouble if I don't, but I get to do those things. I I love her so much. I want to spend time with her. I don't have to. It's the same with our relationship with Jesus. We get to just grow in him and spend time with him. Not put things on ourselves that we have to do, or God's going to be angry and the lightning bolt's going to hit. And if I don't read that one chapter in the Bible before I go to work in the morning, then the lightning bolt's going to strike me when I least expect it. You know, we just put that on ourselves and we start condemning ourselves. And it's like a yoke that we just can't bear it. And nobody else can bear it either. So don't feel bad. You know, even the Jews of the Jews couldn't do it. But they were heaping these burdens on people that were hard to carry and they wouldn't help people at all. They wouldn't even help lift with one of their little fingers like, oh, I'll help you with that. Nope, you're on your own, buddy. I'm going to put this on you and you'd better do it or you're going to be judged. 
One man said, here's the test of any presentation of religion. Does it carry him or has he to carry it? Whenever religion becomes a depressing affair of burdens and prohibition, it ceases to be a true religion. You know, and I don't even like the word religion. Sadly, you know, the Bible uses it and true, true and undefiled religion is this. You know, to take care of widows and orphans in their time of need. I love that. But sadly, the world has thrown it to be, well, I'm not a very religious person. Or what religion are you? Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm this. Man, when I hear that, I'm just like, man, it's not about religion, which nowadays has become a set of ordinances to keep and tradition to keep. But now it's just a relationship with Jesus, man. I've come to know the God that created the heavens and the earth and I found out that he loves me and that he would do something like die for me and that he's alive. I want to know this alive guy. What? I can talk to him? Holy cow, let's start talking. What? I can spend time with him? How about now? Okay, you know, like I get to. What a wonderful thing it is. Oh, you know, it's been said that whenever Satan can't get you to backslide by, with some heinous sin, he'll be glad to make you legalistic. You know, you know what legalism is? It's putting those hard burdens on somebody or on yourself. Oh, I have to do this. Oh, I have to do that. Hey, wait a second. Are you in Christ? Yes, I'm in Christ. Then you don't have to do anything. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You're in Christ. You know, and, and I don't want to jump ahead, but, you know, in Galatians, we're told, you know, were, were you made perfect by works or by faith? By faith in the Son of God is the answer to that. Well, then what do you think you're doing trying to be made perfect through, through the law now? You don't have to. You can just realize, I'm a child of God now. I have his pleasure. There's nothing that I can do to make him love me more right now. He already loves me 100%. He's always loved me a hundred percent. Whether I do this thing or don't do this thing, he's going to love me a hundred percent. Whether I give an extra hundred dollars in the offering today, he still loves me a hundred percent. You know, whether I help the little person cross the street and carry their groceries, still loves me the same. His grace covers you. He is so in love with you that he gave his only son to die for you. When you were his enemy, so you think you're going to please him anymore now? No, he's fully pleased with you. And he wants to shower down gifts upon you. You know, you read about in Galatians, you read about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of people that would torment Christians and say, oh yes, yes, you're saved by faith, but you're also saved by doing this or by doing that. You're saved by faith. Oh, totally, totally agree with you. But you've got to get circumcised now. Or technically, you're not a Christian. Well, then I guess I'm not going to be a Christian, brother. You know, you know. Oh, you're totally saved. But you've got to go door to door now and hand out these Watchtower magazines. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get to be one of the 144,000. You're totally saved, man. You're totally saved. But now you have to go to Haiti for a missionary trip. You know, whatever. No, that's, that's legalism. If your faith is placed in Jesus Christ and you believe that he paid the price on the cross for your sin and you receive his forgiveness upon your life, you are saved right now. 
Now, the conflict is there, like James and Paul have, is they say, well, now that we're saved, we're going to have works. Not to save us, it's just a fruit of already being a Christian. And again, it's just, I get to now. I don't have to, but now that I'm a child of God, I get to do these things, and you're going to see me just working out things naturally in my life. And I always use, hopefully it never gets old, just the example of the, the apple tree. You know, how you never hear it in the middle of the night, you know, waking you up. You know, just straining, you know. But, you know, one day you go out and there's no leaves on it. The next day you go out and there's leaves on it. The next day there's blossoms. The next day there's apples and you don't even remember when it all happened. And wow, it's just natural. Now that I'm saved, wow, there's a fruit, there's a fruit, there's a fruit. And so in Galatians chapter three, verse one, you know, Paul's encouraging these Galatians. It might not totally sound like an encouragement, but these people who've been tainted by the Judaizers, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? or by the hearing of faith? And you can just hear their answer, by faith, (laughs) you know. Well, are you so foolish then? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The answer to that is no. Now that we've been saved by the spirit, we're still made perfect by the spirit. And man, if you don't know Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, you know, Romans chapter 7, I think it's like 19 times that the word I is used. And Paul says, oh, why do I not do the things that I want to do? And why do I do the things I don't want to do? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this law of sin and death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And there's this conflict. I'm always doing what I don't want to do. And then in chapter 8, you realize it's all about the spirit working in you. And you don't read at all the word I, not about me. It's about him working in me and bringing about victory in my life. Because Galatians chapter five says, now I walk in the spirit. And as I'm walking in the spirit, I'm going to be having victory. I'm not going to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And there's a reason why it's called walking in the spirit. It's a step-by-step thing. Some days you have complete and total victory. Sometimes you fall down, get back up and take the next step. And even today, just pray, Lord, help me to walk in the spirit today. Help me to walk for you. You know, sometimes Christians doubt if God's grace is really totally sufficient. So we like to throw in a few good works that we have to do. You know, it's it's not to be done. If there's anything on your to-do list that you have written down that you have to appease God by this work, or if you've ever gone three or four days without reading your Bible and you feel like God hates you now, or that, you know, you're like in some sort of sin that you need to go like confess to the priest or something like that, you know, you know that that's the enemy. Romans chapter eight, who is he that condemns? It's not Jesus. He's risen and at the right hand of the father and ever lives to make intercession for you. So when you start feeling beat down, it's the enemy because Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is saying, man, I remember when I was on that earth and I was a man and I remember the struggles that it was, man, I'm praying for that Rory guy. He's got it tough down there. Lord, 
You know, hear my prayer. Don't listen to the accusations of the enemy. Galatians chapter four, verse nine says, but now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. You know, now that we have a relationship with God, it's not about, you know, oh, I'd better make sure that that Sabbath day is completely and totally set apart or the lightning's coming or the vipers are going to be found in my bed at night or something like that. You know, there's grace. Don't go back to the weak and beggarly elements of tradition and rules and rituals because you won't find it in the scriptures. In Titus chapter three, verse three, it says, we ourselves were also once foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Man, I just love that it's not by anything that we did. We were an enemy of God, but it was by his righteousness and his mercy that he saves us. Now, I'm not talking about clear-cut sin in Scripture. You know, there's, there's black and there's white, and there's things in the Bible that, you know, you shall not be committing sexual immorality. You should not be worshiping other gods. That type of stuff, it's like, well, man, if I'm doing that, Lord, I'm in sin. I, I repent to you. I, I'm, I'm convicted in my heart. But then there's the gray areas, and there's the things that it's just made by man. Those are the things that, you know, don't let that yoke be put on you. Verse 5 through 7, back in Matthew chapter 23. But all their works that they do to be seen by men, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Uh, You know, the phylactery was uh, this small leather box case thing that contained little, little bits of scripture on the inside of it. And the Jews would put it on their forehead and strap it around on their forehead or they'd put it on their left arm. And you can see tons of pictures online of the Jews with their phylacteries. And, you know, really they're taking literally Deuteronomy chapter six, where it says, you know, you should have the word of God coming out of your mouth when you wake up in the morning and when you're walking down the path and when you're eating lunch and when you put your kids to bed at night, always have the word of God just at the, on the doorpost of your house and bind the word of God on your head and, and on your hand. You know, they're taking that totally literally. They've got these phylacteries, but the Jews, the, the uh, Pharisees, I mean, they go to the, you know, phylactery outlet center and get the biggest phylactery they could put, you know, my phylactery is bigger than your phylactery. Oh, check me out. I'm super holy. You know, my arm fell off because the circulation came off because my phylactery, you know, um, you know, and, and it says that they, um, would enlarge the hem of their garments. You know, this is the Jews version of the bell bottom pant, you know, like the bigger, the bell bottom, the more holy you are for the Lord. And they would wear these things around like, like uh, it was some outward sign of their spirituality. And they had this spiritual pride and people would see them and just be just oh so impressed. You know, and then it goes on to say that, uh, you know, <clears throat> they love the best places at the feasts and the best 
seats in the synagogue. So they're just these totally religious looking people. And when they go somewhere, they want total preference, total deference being given to them. They want prominence anywhere they go. Everywhere we go has some sort of a seat of, you know, better, you know, you go to the restaurant, the head of the table, you know, and, uh, you know, only a few of you are sitting in the front row of this service. So that's good. You know, last service, nobody was, so that was encouraging, but, um, you know, But these guys wanted, you know, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where there's like a whole bunch of people sitting up front and just like, we are the mighty rulers, you know, and I don't know, maybe that's not so bad. But, you know, as long as their heart's right, they don't want deference. They don't want this special treatment because it shouldn't be so, you know, these extra religious looking people, you know, you see him coming down and you say, you know, my, my, look at him coming down in his nice flowing robe. What should I call you, sir? Well, why don't you call me the right reverend, high, holy, most ecclesiastical, honorably esteemed, humble servant of God? You know, I love titles like that. You know, I want something like that. I actually don't. But, you know, Jesus says there, uh, you know, they love the greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi, which is a form of master or Lord. Um, But you do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He is who's in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, uh, the Christ. And so, you know, just, just that challenge to not desire or give people these lofty titles of a preference. We should give Jesus the lofty title because he's high and lifted up. He's the most high. He's the excellent. He's the revered one. He's the one that deserves all of the praise and all of the glory. And it's just sad how so many of the churches and so many uh, religious organizations, if you want to call them that, they should be organisms, but sometimes they're organizations, uh, just how they, they kind of ignore this. And I was just even looking at the, um, the signing of the Manhattan Declaration, which was a, a lot of religious leaders that you know, said, you know, we're going to stand up for uh, morality issues. And you, know, you just read some of the titles on the, the petition of some of the religious leaders. And you're like, I can't even say, you know, it was kind of the example I use, most I have rambling esteemed. You know, it's like, whoa, do you realize you're supposed to be a servant? <laughs> You know, you're not supposed to be most highly esteemed among all the people in this church. I'm the pastor. Do you know who I am? You know, like, no, man, I, Jesus is going to go on to say there in verse, you know, 11, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Man, you want to be great? Start serving people. Whoever calls himself, or excuse me, whoever exalts himself, verse 12, will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Whether it's the clothing that we wear or the titles that we receive, man, if you're getting preference or deference because of it, there's something wrong. And I kind of love this story that uh, following the Revolutionary War, the United States decided that they wanted to have a leader that was different than the monarch-style leadership that England had. And uh, originally, Congress gave the president this title They would call him his high mightiness, the president of the United States and protector of their liberties. But people would hear that and they're like, what's any difference between what we just liberated ourselves from in England? You know, this just reeks of monarchy and royalty. 
And so Congress was trying to think, well, what's a better title? What could we call our new, you know, leader that's as serve, is he serving out his term? And John Adams wanted it to have something with some sort of reverence and, and, uh, deference and prestige. And so he's like, Hey, George Washington, why don't we call you the most excellent commander in chief? Wouldn't that be awesome? And I just love that George Washington, he just wouldn't allow it. And he insisted that people call him just Mr. President, you know? He's like, all I'm doing is just presiding over Congress right now. You know, I don't need anything that's going to puff me up in front of people. And, uh, you know, man, may we just always have that right in our heart when we're esteeming others, you know, or when we're exalting ourselves. Just may the Lord just humble us. And, uh, you know, it's not that Jesus is literally forbidding that we call our dad's fathers, you know, or our fifth grade math teacher, you know, teacher, could you help me with my math? How dare you? There is one that is your teacher. You know, there's different roles and there's different functions and gifts within the body of Christ. There's different callings in the body, but not one of them is better than another. Is there order within the callings? Yes, there's order, but not one is better. Being a pastor is no better than being a worship leader, which is no better than being a, you know, the janitor or the window cleaner or the trash picker upper. You know, it's been said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And uh, man, just my prayer that I'll just, the Lord will always just make me humble, keep me humble. Um, now in verse uh, 13, it, it switches to just kind of general talking about the Pharisees who were present and the scribes. And now Jesus speaks directly to the Pharisees and he calls them out on their sin. And, uh, you know, for three and a half years, he was uh, compassionate. But in light of his rejection and the Jewish leaders here, his tone changes and his last sermon is blistering with condemnation. A.T. Robertson, who was a Greek scholar, said, this last sermon is the rolling thunder of Christ's wrath. And Plummer says, like thunder in their unanswerable severity and like lightning in their unsparing exposure, his words illuminate while they strike. And we're going to read of eight woes here. Eight woes. And it's important to know that Jesus isn't losing his temper But it's been said about him that it's like the calm, settled opposition of his nature towards sin. Righteous anger, if you will. Now, it's interesting to compare these last eight woes in this chapter, in in his last sermon, his last public sermon has eight woes. And you can compare it with his first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which had eight blessings, the Beatitudes. And it's interesting how they nearly directly uh, go along with each other. And uh, so you just remember, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely for my namesake. And so as we go along, I'll give you a little bit of it, but you guys can just kind of in your own, oh, wow, that is like that beatitude. Very similar. And so we have eight woes. Whoa, 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 whoa. Over and over again. Now, a woe is interesting. Whoa. Uh, 
But it's a form of grief and of mourning. And it's hard to explain this word because it's a mixture of wrath and grief at the same time. It's hardly a word. It's more of a, oh, oh, you know, you know, the only way to spell that W O E, I think is how that kind of sounded. Um, W O W. Um, whoa. Uh, but there's condemnation in these woes. There's regret in these woes and there's sorrow. And you know, I can handle a lot of people pointing their finger at me, but if Jesus were to point his finger at me and say, oh, Rory, look at this. Just look at what you're doing. And if he were to do that eight times to me, <laughs> oh, yeah. So verse 13, let's get into it. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Man, when a person gets saved, they have to humble themselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I realize I'm poor in spirit. I'm going to see God now. You know, but the, the people, the Pharisees, they would not humble themselves and, and they wouldn't let other people humble themselves either. You know, I heard a story about a man who was a pastor of a huge denominational church and he went to Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia and heard the word of God being taught plainly and simply and the gospel preached, not watered down at all. And he got saved And he went back to his church and started teaching the word of God and people are getting saved and revivals happening. And he gets called into the office of this head denominational church and gets fired. You know, that's, that's a group of people that, you know, they see people entering in and they try to stop them. They themselves won't enter in and they won't let anybody else enter in either. Instead of being bridges, they've become barriers And man, woe upon whether it's Jews or Christians or Catholics or anybody that would do that. It's it's grieving to the Lord. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. Now, I know, John, you're thinking, widow houses? I like the widow houses or cute widow widows. (laughs) It's not what it's talking about, John. John and I are close. He doesn't mind if I make fun of him every now and then. You know, you you devour widows' houses, and for a prophet or a pretense, you make long prayers. You know, you've seen the guitar players out in the subway station getting money. Have you ever seen the prayers out in the subway station? Yes, Lord! Put your money in there. Uh, This is an incredible time here with you today, Lord. Just put your money in there. Come on, ching, ching. You know, and... uh, you know, it's everything that Jesus taught against in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, what our prayer lives should be, not for show, um, but, uh, you know, because of this, you know, because they'll, they devour the widow's houses and make these long prayers just to be showy, they'll receive great condemnation. It's, it's crazy because if we were to go back to Luke chapter 20 and 21, those last, those verses, you know, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees and how they devour widows' houses, and then you see a little widow putting in her last two mites in the offering bin because she's thinking that this place is going to save me. This is my last little bit. The temple, they're going to take care of me. They've got the seniors serving our Savior ministry. You know, they didn't have that. Uh, but they're going to they're gonna help me when really they were going to devour her. 
they were going to take her money and then they would shut her out of the temple. And right after that, the disciples are walking around with Jesus in the temple saying, look at the temple. Isn't it incredible? Look at all these buildings. And oh, it's just, it's the, it's a wonder of the world, this feat of architecture. And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, this thing is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be sitting upon another. Why? Because of the men that are running the place. They should be having compassion on this widow and she thinks that they're going to, but she doesn't know that they're going to devour her, take away her home and shut her out of the temple. That's contrasted with blessed are those who mourn. Then verse 15, you guys still with me? Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you actors, For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he's one, you make him twice as much the son of the devil as yourself. Have you ever heard someone given a woe because they're a missionary? (laughs) Woe to you, you missionary. Well, what? That doesn't sound right. The reason there's a woe to these missionaries is because they would go to some far, foreign, far away country and they would win a convert And they would heap upon him the traditions that they had learned from their person, their sensei, you know, the one that discipled them. Not only that, they're going to heap upon them all these new ones that they, these, each disciple gets weighed down with more and more and more and more. And it's a vicious cycle is what it really is. And it just goes to show that being a missionary is not the mark of a redempted heart. You know, there's lots of religions out there that have missionaries but putting your faith in Jesus Christ is what, what makes a man righteous. Verse 16, this is kind of an, an interesting uh, little section here. <laughs> Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, what is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Foolish, fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So, you know, there's this strange convoluted thinking that's going on in the Jew's mind. You know, there was this weird worship, you know, swearing by the temple was a five on the oath scale, you know, but swearing by the gold in the temple, that was it. You really have to keep your promise if you swear by the gold in the temple, it's just by the temple, you know, one way or the other, it doesn't really matter. And Jesus just goes on for the, for five verses saying, you guys, you're so weird thinking your minds are just so messed up. Don't you realize that apart from the dedication by God on this temple, it's simply another building? It's just another building. And all those fancy gold shovels over there, they're just shovels. Use them in the horse stalls if you want to, you know? And those little trumpet things over there, take them to your marching band. I don't care, because if God's not the one that's dedicated this place, it's nothing. But the people began to worship the thing, the creature, rather than the creator. And so uh, I know that's kind of a a hard set of scriptures to to follow. Um, But uh, verse 23, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And so they were very good, very diligent in their tithing, you know, 10% of my spices. I mean, could you imagine, you know, 10% of my mint, 10% of my toothpaste, you know, 10% of my kidney beans, you know, got to have, get out that, get that 10%. And then they turn around and oh, you jerk, get out of here, you know, and just, whoa, something's not right here, you know. You're forgetting some of the most important thing, justice and mercy and love. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, though I sing with the song, speak with the tongues of angels, but I don't have love. It's like I'm clanging a bunch of pots and pans together. Even if I were to give my body to be burned, but I didn't do it out of love, it's worthless. It's worthless. And so he's calling these guys out on who cares about your little tithe of cinnamon? Because you're a jerk to your neighbor and you're going to kill me and I'm the God man, you know, but he says, you know, these things you should have done. Yeah, it's, it's great. You know, have a good heart in your giving, but don't forget justice and mercy and these, these weightier things of the law. Verse 24, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You know, they were literally nitpicky, you know, they, they would put a little piece of cloth over their wine so that when they drank it, no bugs would get it. Lord forbid I swallow a gnat. I'm going to hell for sure this time. You know, they would, and yet then they'd go and do something totally, completely unclean. Same level as swallowing a camel, you know, and uh, their reasoning, everything in their minds were off and the Lord calls them on it. Woe to you, scribes, verse 25, and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. But inside, they are full of uh, extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them might be clean as well. You know, blessed are the pure in heart inside them for they'll see God. I remember growing up as a little kid and, you know, washing the dishes. I hated washing the dishes and now I don't mind it so much. But back as a kid, didn't want to do it. But man, if you get the outside of that dish all polished real nice, you know, and who cares if there's a couple little like Klingons inside there, you know, some sticky stuff, you know, does it really matter? And my mom would always come back to me, Rory, come in here, you know, look at this dish. Feel inside the dish. She'd always say, you know a dish is clean when you can't feel anything in it anymore. And I was like, cornwash or whatever. Uh, cornwash? Yes, cornwash. Um, you know, uh, the outside of these people looked so polished with their Pharisee bell bottoms on and their phylacteries and, oh, that's a clean dish. But inside, ugh. We're going to read about what the inside was like. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, you know, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. And then if you jump down to verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things with per, with, which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom 
and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. You know, the, the people had not been converted. You know, they're, they're going to this system that, that's not going to clean them. You know, it just makes them look great on the outside. Just doing these things. Oh, it looks great. But your flesh is still filthy and dirty. Verse 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So it was a common practice to, to clean up the outside of a tomb, you know, uh, decorate it. Also, it made it easier to spot one so you didn't go inside of it and become unclean. They'd whitewash the thing. And even today, you can go to Israel and see these whitewashed tombs. You know, Paul called Ananias, the high priest, a whitewashed tomb. You know, Ananias struck Paul for speaking the truth. And Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it is speaking of, oh, on the outside, you look awesome. But open that door, you know, and woo, rottenness, you know, clattering bones, decay, flies. I could go on with a list of what it's like inside of a tomb, but I'm going to spare you. That's interesting. I was just praying all week, knowing that I was, was going here. And, you know, probably for you, this might not be like the top 10 sermons of all time. You know, hey, let's read the woe to the Pharisees. Woo! You know, <clears throat> but of course, it's the word of God and it's definitely profitable. But I've just been praying all week. Lord, you know, bring it home to us. You know, 2010 Christianity, where it's so easy to just look like a Christian and call yourself a Christian. But are people really even Christians? And uh, it's just funny, you know, last night my father-in-law was over and he was reading this book. And uh, he's like, Rory, you got to hear this. This is, this is so funny. And he reads it. And it was like an answer to my prayer. I was like, man, that's, that's just like talking about painting yourself like a whitewashed tomb, you know, so the outside looks good. And so I wanted to read just this little portion, this little paragraph from this book. Uh, it's written by Joe Gibbs, who three-time Super Bowl champion coach, for the Redskins and three-time NASCAR champion uh, team owner, uh, Joe Gibbs, um, wrote this in his book. It's interesting. He, he gave this, this evangelical book out to anyone who sold interstate batteries. Uh, so if your dad owns a mechanic shop like me, you'll appreciate that. But um, father-in-law. So it, let me read this. One day, a man was driving past a barn in the country when he had to stop and get out to look closer at something that stupefied him. On the side of the barn were painted 20 targets, each with a bullet hole right through the center of the bullseye. He didn't see another hole anywhere in the barn. Just then the farmer appeared and asked the man if he could help him. Yeah, you can tell me who in the world did the shooting on the side of the barn. Oh, well, that was me. 20 targets with 20 dead center bullseye shots. You did that every shot. Where did you ever learn how to shoot like that? Uh, it was easy. I shot first, and then I painted the targets around the holes. <laughs> and then Joe Gibbs goes on to say, do you ever do that with your life? You do everything you can to give the impression that you're on target. 
when really all you've ever done is learn to paint well. Too often we try to camouflage our emptiness with scrambling for success and significance. Some even try to fill their emptiness through religious activities such as church membership. We have learned to look, talk, and act like Christians, but all these things are mere paint, painted holes, to obscure the fact that we're tragically off target. We are missing the mark. And maybe you today, if you were to be honest with yourself, your Christianity is nothing but a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you look good, but on the inside, you're full of decaying bones, clanking and clattering bones, no life whatsoever. The good news is that today, just as when God created Adam, it says that God breathed into Adam's lungs the breath of life and made Adam living. Today, he can breathe into your life and make you living. And I love the picture in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel sees this valley just full of dead bones, dry, dry bones with no life in them. And he says that the wind came upon the bones and they started clattering and clanking. And pretty soon they started building up on each other and starting to go into place and Men, you know, body shapes started forming and then joints and sinews and muscle started going onto these bones. And pretty soon it was a full living, breathing man, full of them all out through the, all through the valley. And may the Lord do that in this place today where there's nothing but empty religion. Man, you've got your spiritual bell bottoms on. You've got everybody fooled. You're the most spiritual person in the church. You might be in church leadership. You might be serving in the body, you know. I might have think that you're a direct descendant of Peter, you know, I don't know. But inside, man, you know it and the Lord knows it. And maybe you're the only two that know it. You're full of dead bones. And you just need the Spirit of God to, to come inside you and to breathe and to bring new life. It wasn't until second service I realized that we sang that, you know, consuming fire, fan into flame, a passion for your name. Lord, just give us fire. Give us your Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. Without your Spirit, Lord, we're just religious. But with your Spirit, there's power. There's such, there's such power uh, to live a life that's just fully in love with Jesus. Now, verse uh, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. You serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. 
Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You know, they, the Jews, the Pharisees would go and decorate those tombs saying, oh, we're so sorry for what our fathers did killing the prophets when in a day from now, they're going to murder Jesus. You know, they're going to, they're going to murder God's son. And then not only that, in the next many years, they're going to murder the prophets and the disciples and the apostles. And in, in, in a day from now, when Jesus is talking, they're going to say, let his blood be upon our head and our son's heads. Crucify him. Crucify him. Kill him. And Jesus said that judgment is going to come on them because of their heart. And judgment did come some 40 years later when the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and really slaughtered the Jews in that day. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem here. And, and man, when you hear him uh, you know, say the name twice, it's just an extra exclamation of his grief. And it's funny, um, the last time I taught on this section, I was listening to the radio and I heard this comedian, uh, you know, going off the Jerusalem, Jerusalem part. And he said, before my wife and her friend left to go grocery shopping, she said, honey, we're going shopping, but don't worry, we're not going shopping, shopping. He says, why is it that women repeat words as kind of a code language? I like him. But I don't like him like him. We kissed, but we didn't kiss kiss. Men never talk like that. Except for my buddy did to me one time years ago. I told him about a date I went on with this girl. He said, was it a date date? I said, well, I took her to dinner dinner, spent money money, but didn't get a kiss kiss. And now I'm miffed miffed. I guess when you say things twice, you really mean it. <laughs> Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus would say it. He would repeat things. Simon, Simon. You know, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. You know, or Martha, Martha. You know, don't be bummed out that Mary's in here serving me and worshiping me. And you're in there working in the kitchen. Or Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And here you just hear his grief, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, it wasn't a matter of Jesus wanting Jerusalem to get saved. He wanted them to get saved. You know, there's doctrine out there in hyper-Calvinism called irresistible grace, that God's going to save whoever he wants to save. And I, I believe this is a passage that just shows, man, if, if Jesus could have saved Jerusalem right then and there, all Jerusalem would have been saved right then and there. But they weren't going to be. You know, it's interesting. He just wanted to gather them under his wings. And stories are told of, of uh, after barn fires that farmers will go in to assess the damage of their barn fire and they'll find mother hens that had gathered chicks under their wings and the mother hen would be completely crispy, crunchy, torched. But you'd lift up the mother hen and there'd be live baby chicks underneath. And man, do you think Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, I just want to save you from the wrath to come, but you won't come under me. Guys, don't let one more day go by 
not getting under the wings of Jesus and being saved from the wrath to come. He wants to save you today. He wants to breathe life into your religious body and breathe life into your new bones. And he can do that today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.